Romans chapter 9, verses 22 to 29. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray together. That stands true of us, Lord. Had you not moved in power upon our individual lives and our corporate life as a church, we too would have become a Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how bad we are in ourselves. And it makes us so happy that because of mercy, you spoke a word of call. You said, live. And we awoke from the dead, as it were, and trusted you and were justified. And now we love the place where you were crucified, Lord Jesus. We love the place where we were justified. Father, I ask that you would help me now to speak the word of God with faithfulness and humility and conviction and broken-hearted boldness. And I ask that you would save sinners and strengthen saints. In Jesus' name and for his glory, I pray. Amen. This text that Sean just read is relevant for our vision of God and how he rescues us from his wrath. And it's relevant for racism and ethnic arrogance. And it's relevant for the Palestinian and Israeli question. And it's relevant for why it is that we Christians use the Jewish Bible, which they call the Tanakh, and call it our own. It's relevant for humility and thankfulness to God for his mercy in Christ, and it's relevant for his global purpose to expand the kingdom everywhere among all peoples. This text is a very explosive Politically explosive, church explosive, soul explosive text. But before I look at those six relevancies, let me do a little 
survey of the text with you and get us back into Romans 9 after many weeks away. The problem raised in the book of Romans chapter 9 is stated in verse 3. Paul says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, in so many words, he is saying, my kinsmen, my Jewish brothers and sisters are accursed and cut off from Christ. Many of them are lost and perishing. Oh, that I could take their place. So the problem that he has set up in an indirect way by expressing his own heartbrokenness is that the covenant people are in trouble. Many of them are accursed and cut off from Christ. This is an absolutely stunning statement that the covenant people, Israel, many of them are accursed and cut off from Christ. And here's the problem. If God's promises made to Israel don't come true, if the covenant people to whom is promised salvation and faithfulness can perish and be cut off from the Messiah, then what good are the promises of God for Christians? That's the issue. What good is Romans 8 and all of its wonderful promises that God will supply us with everything we need and work everything together for our good and let nothing separate us from the love of Christ? What good is that chapter if, in the case of Israel, all the promises of God abort? Now, Paul's answer to this crisis is in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And then he starts to reason and argue. And he's still doing that in today's text. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Paul's basic answer to why the word of God has not failed and why the unbelief of many physical Israelites does not undermine his faithfulness is that not all physical Israelites are Israelites. Not all Jews are Jews. Not all Israel is Israel. Not everyone descended from Abraham is truly a son of Abraham, a child of promise. Well, why not? He argues, he gives his conclusion in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted, reckoned as offspring. And the whole issue of election is raised, that God in viewing a people to whom he has given promises and with whom he has made covenant says, I have from the beginning ordained that there be a remnant among this people whom I reckon to be seed and who are not automatically seed because they have a particular father or a particular mother. And that is massively relevant to the church and to Israel today. Why does God act this way? Verse 11, middle of the verse in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
And that word call is picked up now in verse 24. Everything from verse 14 to 23 is a parenthesis in which Paul argues for the justice of God in acting this way. And now that parenthesis closed. And verse 23 is the end of the parenthesis. And he's picking up the argument again from verses 6 to 13 where he has said, Not all Israel is Israel. I have chosen some from Israel. So let's look at verse 24. Let's pick it up in the middle of verse 23 with vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy which God, he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, who is this? Even us whom he has called. We pick it up from the paragraph 6 to 13. Not from Jews only. That much we have seen. He has called people from Jews. Don't miss that word from. Not all, but from Jews, And now he broadens it out and does something he hasn't done yet in Romans 9. And he says, Gentiles are included. Not only from Jews, but from Gentiles. The call of God creating a people, creating an Israel, creating seed who will inherit the promises. He creates with a call. And he calls some from Israel and he calls people from the Gentiles. So the point here in verse 24 is that God's people are coming from both. The vessels of mercy are coming from both Jews and Gentiles. And then everything else in this paragraph is Old Testament support. Quote from Hosea, Hosea, and a quote from Isaiah. And the quotations from Hosea and Isaiah are intended to argue that, yes, they are coming from Gentiles, and yes, only a remnant is coming from Israel. Now, let's look at those Old Testament supports. Verses 25 to 26 is a quote from Hosea. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. That text is used by Paul to argue for the first part or for the Gentile part of Romans 9.24. From Israel and from the Gentiles. And then he quotes. And here's the tremendously significant thing about that. That text is addressed to Israel, not Gentiles, in Hosea. And Israel has been sent or will be sent into captivity. And then God, in his sovereign grace, will take them again for himself. But Paul regards the not my people so seriously in God's decree over Israel that he says they are as good as Gentiles. 
And if they are as good as Gentiles in being, not my people, then when he calls them again and says, beloved, my people, it's the same as if he were calling another nation to himself. And therefore, the door is flung wide to the Gentiles. That's the reasoning, it seems to me, that's in Paul's head here. If Jews were really a no people and then were made a people, then Gentiles who are really a no people can be made a people. Indeed, they are made a people as this whole book is designed to show. And then look at verses 27 to 29, where he quotes from Isaiah to support the fact that only a remnant of Jews will be part of the vessels of mercy. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Notice. The limitation. Verse 28. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Verse 29. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring and note there the sovereign work of God without which there would be no Jew saved. If the Lord had not left us an offspring we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So what's the point of this text? Verses 24 to 29. The point of this text is that God is creating a people, vessels of mercy for himself from Jews and from Gentiles. And he's doing it in a surprising way that shocks both. Jews in general thought they would all be God's people. They would all be saved. And he does it in a way that subdues that presumption. Gentiles who heard the Jews talk thought, we're excluded. We're unclean. We're uncircumcised. There's no way for us to be saved. And God does that in a way to trump their despair and bring them to himself. So he saves in a double way to bring down presumption and destroy despair. I don't know which category you might be in this morning. Oh, I'm going to be saved. Sure, it's obvious. I'm going to be saved. I had Christian parents and been in the church all my life. This text says smash on that presumption. Or you might be sitting there saying, there's no way I could ever be saved. You know what I've done. I've been a part of a kind of family, a part of a kind of gang, a part of a kind of system of life and business that puts me so far beyond the pale of grace and salvation. And to that, God says, don't you dare presume to lift your despair above the grace of God. He will bring down presumption and he will overcome despair. Now, that's the text. What about the relevance of those six things I mentioned at the beginning? Let's take them one at a time and say, here's the text. How does it bear upon these six things? Number one, this text is relevant to our vision of God and the way he rescues from his wrath. And I'm not going to linger over this long because we spent so much time on this already in 11 messages on this chapter so far. But. It is there in the word called. Even us whom God called, not from Jews only, but also from 
Gentiles. In other words, the point of this text is God is sovereign in salvation. God doesn't just leave it up to the Jews and leave it up to us Gentiles to decide who will populate heaven and who will be the vessels of mercy. God calls. God summons. And therefore, we should be tremblingly thankful that God has spoken into our lives when we were dead in trespasses and sins and said, Live, John Piper. Live, Bethlehem. And awakened us like Lazarus from the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. And the words create the life. That's what happened when you got saved. You may not know it. And God is gracious to save you in ways you don't understand. But if you would understand and give him all the glory, know that on the day you yielded to Jesus, that was owing to a life in you that is not from nature, but rather was produced by the sovereign, let there be life. The call of God brought you into being. Don't presume to take credit for the miracle of your conversion. That's the first thing this text is relevant for. The second thing that it's relevant for is the issue of racism and ethnic arrogance. When God saves sinners and builds his church by passing over many ethnically privileged and embracing many ethnic outcasts, He is saying, I do not base my blessing on race or ethnicity. And you shouldn't either base your grace and mercy on race or ethnicity. He's going to save a people in a way that breaks the pride of the privileged and overcomes the despair of the outcast. Ethnic envy and ethnic arrogance are excluded. Indeed, we're going to see in a few minutes that God is not only negatively resistant to racism and ethnocentrism, he is aggressively broad and diverse in his pursuits of vessels of mercy. Third, this text is relevant for the issue of the Palestinian and Israeli conflict in the Middle East. And this one um, is controversial and I will get letters, I'm sure. Um, And I'm going to make it probably even more controversial because I'm so ticked off at an interview that I heard at 530 this morning on NPR between... uh, a radio spokesman and an Arab and a Southern Baptist advocate for taking mercy ministries into Iraq. Uh, now, where to weave that in, in this point? Let me not get sidetracked from what I have planned, but I hope to come back to that degree of dismay that I feel. What is the status of Israel before God today. Let's be very clear. 
What is the status of Christ rejecting Israel before God today? Luke 10.16 says, Jesus speaking, The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. That means every religion, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Judaism, which rejects Jesus Christ as crucified and risen Savior and Lord, does not know God in any saving way. Faith Obedience, love, devotion to God are not saving in those Christ-rejecting religions. 1 John 5:12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, before I speak to Israel, let me go to this, this interview on the radio I am so thankful that mercy is going to be extended to Muslims in Iraq in the name of Jesus. And I pray that they don't cower and turn away because of Muslims who say this is the height of arrogance and presumption and insensitivity. And But there was this conversation going on. And they asked the representative of Christ. Now, why are you doing this? And he said, we're doing this because we want to show the love of God and to what lengths he has gone to make known in Iraq his love for them. That word length has a name. The name is Jesus. Now, I wouldn't have been so upset. I wouldn't have been so upset had the conversation not gone on and the interviewer turned to the Muslim and said, well, what's, what's wrong with that? And he said, we know about the love of God, thank you. We know God. We know about the love of God. We don't need anybody to come here tell us about the love of God. And I wanted to say, okay, okay, here's your opportunity Do they know or don't they know? Not a word. This Christian representative never said the word Jesus, never said the word Christ. Rather, the Muslim did. He said, really the issue is, they want us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he turns to the Christian. He will not affirm it. I tell you, I just wanted to kick my radio across the bedroom. Only I was barefooted and it would have hurt. Here's what I, I mean, I'm sitting down here singing those songs and I wanted with tears, God gives tears every now and then. I wanted him to say, you know, whatever the interviewer's name is and the others, just call him by name. You know, what I really want is to know that. All the debts are paid by the blood of Jesus. And if you 
uh, NPR interviewer and you, my Muslim friend, would believe this, Christ would cancel all your sins. You would have a true ground for acceptance before a holy God. That's why we want to come. We want people to know the way of salvation. We won't push it on anybody. We may not even say it unless they ask us. But that's what we want to say because that's your only hope of life. I tell you all this gibberish today about making the love of God known through mercy ministries without naming Jesus is a tragedy. Nobody gets saved without Jesus. He who rejects me rejects him who sent me. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life. It is cruel to do things in the name of the love of God and not lead people to Jesus. Well, I'm probably being too hard on him. He's probably thought through his strategy very deeply. and I just don't want you to get in conversations downtown where you have gold, golden opportunities. Golden opportunities in Roseville. And golden opportunities here to say, the reason I'm giving you this blanket is because Christ has died for my sins and risen again. And if you'd trust him, you could have everlasting life and we could be together forever as friends in heaven, enjoying the beauty of God. Don't be wishy-washy about the king. Get Jesus on the plate. Every day, stop talking about God and start talking about Jesus. That's my burden since 9-11. I want to be more Christ-exalting. Yes, we're still God-centered. Yes, still for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. But now, a fifth banner through Jesus Christ. Okay. Back to Israel. All that came from this morning at 5.30. What I had down here to say under point three is, what about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? And what is the status of Israel today? And my answer is, they are no people. They are, according to Hosea 1.9 and Romans 9.26, a no people. That is, and the Lord said, call his name, call Israel's name, not My people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That's what God said to a covenant-breaking Israel when he sent them into exile. Now, be careful. This does not mean that God may not, cannot, and will not, in fact, I believe he will, take them to himself again. When the full number of the Gentiles comes in, then all Israel will be saved. But now, here's my position. I give it to you for your consideration. Christ-rejecting, covenant-breaking Israel has no present claim to covenant promises. I'll say that again. Christ-rejecting, covenant-breaking Israel has no present claim to covenant promises. How then should we treat Palestinians and Jews? Answer, die for them. Love them. And when it comes to political geographical issues, deal in terms of justice and mercy. 
just like with every other nation, unflinchingly just, unflinchingly merciful, but no special pleading about divine rights here. So, let us be pro-Israel when it's the just thing to be pro-Israel. And let us be pro-Palestinian when it's the just thing to be pro-Palestinian. And let us pray for the day when the veil will be lifted and the hardening will be taken away. And as in one day a nation is created and the whole of Israel returns to Jesus Christ. And I believe at that moment we will not be put into political question because the Lord will descend from heaven with a trump and the archangel will make it plain whose land is whose. And it will belong to the church, by the way. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit not Palestine, but the earth. Okay, that's point three. May it cause us to be loving. May it exclude all anti-Semitism as sin and all unquestioning rejection of possible Palestinian rights as sin. Four. This is relevant. This text is relevant for why you Christians, we Christians, read the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, the Torah, the writings, the prophets, why we read this Jewish book as so though it's ours. Why can we do that? Or should we do that? We call it the Old Testament. They don't like that name. Well, the question is, um, who can lay claim to Isaiah 41.10? I mean, I, this is really relevant to me. I Probably more than any other promise in the Bible... I have strengthened my hand in times of fear with Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. I'll hold you up. I quoted myself that text so many hundreds of times over the years. I've tried to give it to my sons when they've gone away and done hard things. And my dad gave it to me when I went to Germany in 1971 over the telephone in New York City when he couldn't be there to see me off. I mean, this verse is massively precious to me and I live on it in every crisis I come to. And the question is, have I any right? Have I any right? That verse is addressed to Israel. The question is, who is us in verse 24? Who is us in verse 24? Even us, whom he called, not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You could say, well, it's clear who they are. They're the vessels of mercy. You can see that in verse 23. The vessels of mercy, whom he called, us, not from Jews only, but from Gentiles. So it's vessels of mercy. And surely if we're vessels of mercy... If all the riches of glory in verse 23 are going to be ours, then surely Isaiah 41.10 will be ours. Well, I think that's a compelling argument, but there is one even more compelling. And that is the connection between verse 24 and verses 6 to 8. Again, let's go back. Start in the middle of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
In other words, Jewishness is not a guarantee of being part of the heirs called Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. Us, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. The us in verse 24 refers to Israel at the end of verse 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, but rather those whom God is calling from Israel and from the Gentiles. That's you. You are part of that Israel. Or the offspring at the end of verse 8. The children of the promise are counted, counted. You are reckoned to be offspring so that the promises made to the offspring are yours by a divine reckoning. In Christ Jesus, the seed, we become seed. In the Messiah, we are grafted in to the rich root of the olive tree through which all these promises and the natural branches are being broken off because of unbelief. That's Israel. And we foreign branches are being grafted in by faith, getting the sap of promises. Isaiah 41.10 is the sap of the covenant tree into which John Piper, like this lousy, no good, broken off branch lying on the ground, just plugged in there by grace and taped around with blood and made to drink of all that was ever promised to Israel. That's my life. you got to be a Jew to be saved. Salvation is of the Jews. There is no salvation if Gentiles like us can't be grafted into the covenant made with Israel. And that's what these chapters are all about, 9 to 11. So, yes, the us in verse 24 is Israel. The true Israel, the spiritual Israel, and therefore everything promised to them is yours in Christ. And oh, let us say with the psalmist, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Revel, Christian, in the promises of the Old Testament. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Can you embrace that? If you understand what I just said, they are yours. Number five. This text is relevant for humility and thankfulness, which we need because some of the things I've been saying will be construed as arrogant by those of other faiths. So let me make sure that you see a very humbling thing in this text. Verse 29 As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, that is a word addressed to Israel, the favored people. Sodom and Gomorrah are not even Jewish cities. They are pagan cities, which means that 
Had God not intervened in the life of his chosen people, Israel, the way they are wired would take them straight to being Sodom and Gomorrah. And if God says that about the most favored people on planet Earth, what would he say about you and me? He would say, Bethlehem, had I not intervened in your life with sovereign, free, undeserved mercy and grace, you would have all become like Sodom and Gomorrah. That is, maximally wicked and obliterated. Now, you need to, you need to dwell on this because we think we're pretty good folks. We're not pretty good folks. We are graced folks. There resides in every human being in this room impulses of fallenness and corruption and unbelief which without sovereign restraining grace would lead all of us to be Sodom and Gomorrah. And therefore, oh, how humble we should be. So you may pray for me and this staff and these elders that God continually break us. May he do, and I say it publicly, may he do whatever needs to be done by way of pain and heartache and stress and disease and difficulty, whatever it takes, may it be done for the leadership of this church that we would be brokenhearted, contrite in spirit and humble before each other and before the living God. We are all on the way to Sodom without grace. Finally, number six. This text is relevant for our global vision of Christ's kingdom. The word Gentiles in verse 24 is another word for peoples. Peoples. God is calling people from the peoples. God's aim in salvation is wide. Now, this is very, very important because if you look at verse 27 and you see the words, only a remnant of Israel will be saved. You could take that out of context and say, what a narrow, confined, constricted heart God has. Only a little remnant. Though you be like the sands on the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. You could take that out of there and say, look how narrow, look how confined, look how small is the heart of God. And the answer to that would be, read the rest of the book. I'll read you verse 25 of chapter 11. Yes, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until, here's the design of that hardening, until the fullness 
of the Gentiles has come in. So one of the reasons there's this temporary hardening upon Israel is because God means to flood the nations with his glory. Flood the nations with salvation and draw people from all the religions and all the ethnicities of the world. Not just a little people called Israel. This is an evidence of the bigness of God's heart. And don't miss the word until. I'll read it again. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until. Until the fullness of the Gentiles, the peoples have come in. And in this way, that hardening will be removed. And that people, corporately, in mass, will believe on their Messiah, become Christians. And be saved. God has in mind a fullness for Israel and a fullness for the Gentiles. I believe the likes of which we have not yet seen. So, in conclusion, let's rejoice that we are included in the true Israel. The children of God, the vessels of of mercy. Let there be no clickishness among us, either inside Bethlehem or as Bethlehem before the world. And may our hearts rather be broad. May we not be narrow or confined or constricted in our mercies and our affections and our witness and our mission. Let's give ourselves to savoring and showing the wideness of God's mercy. So let's pray together. Oh, Father, I thank you that your mercy was wide enough to reach warlike, Teutonic tribes in Europe, pagans, murderers. And I thank you that the church was established among those vicious Scandinavians, Germans. And I thank you that Some of them emigrated to this country and we have become heirs. Then there are others in this room and up north who have their lineage traced to Africa and Asia, Latin cultures. And because they're in these rooms are beneficiaries of grace because your heart is wide and you're calling us. And so grant, I pray that we would exult in the wideness of your mercy and show the wideness of your mercy in the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.